0: So thank you, Greg, and those that serve with him. If you have a Bible with you this morning, and I hope you have a Bible with you, I want you to invite, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Now, I hope that you will keep your Bible open because um, normally my practice, my habit is that we just walk verse by verse, through word through word, through a passage together on a Sunday morning. But if you have a copy of that bulletin on the back of that, you will see A lot of scripture that is referenced. I hope that you will turn with me. I hope that you will follow along with me. And instead of actually doing what has traditionally been called an expository sermon, walking verse by verse, word by word, I want to address a question and I want to address a subject this morning and then use the entirety or or, or the, the whole Bible to lay out what I believe to be a scriptural picture for the church this morning. Back in 1984, Scott Baio was the leading star in a TV show. He was cast as the character of Charles Salamander. He was a young college age student and he was trying to put himself through school and so he answered an advertisement in the paper for an affluent family that was needing someone to come and to be their live-in housekeeper, to care for their three children and to take care of the other task in the home. The TV show that aired in 1984, ran for a season or so, took a little break, came back, but the show was called Charles in Charge. And in the TV show, it was just a comedy, a sitcom, if you will, but it was all about the affluent parents that thought that they were in charge of the house. You had Scott Bayo or Charles Salamander, the, the college student that was given the responsibility. He thought he was in charge of the house. And then you had the three children that thought that they were in charge of the house. And there's been numerous sitcoms that have taken place throughout the uh, last couple of decades, the last several decades, numerous sitcoms that have kind of highlighted and keyed off that theme where you have multiple people. I grew up with Full House. And when you ha- came to the sitcom of Full House, you had different people thinking they were in charge, and the comedy that takes place in the life and in the home when those three three, when those different pictures are living with each other. And we might think that. That is comedy when we see it on television. But when we see it played out in real life or even the life of the church, it can be a spiritual tragedy. Now I'm gonna, hit, I'm gonna walk us through something this morning that is not light and is not easy. But I hope that you'll see with me where I'm coming from. Several weeks ago, there were some changes and proposals made for the direction of life of this church. And there have been lots of different opinions, lots of different ideas, lots of different perspectives given. We're coming back tonight um, to pick back up the discussion, pick back up the details, pick back up the nuts and bolts. But before we do, I want to ask us the question as a church. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? I have you in Matthew chapter 16, and in a moment we are going to look at verse 18. Because I, cause I come to scripture and I think about the life of the church, I see, and we're going to say uh, put out there, and then you can find more if you want to in the life of the scripture. But there's three titles that we see over and over through the life of the church. You get to Acts and that early model of what that early church was supposed to look like. You think about in, in Jesus and in Christ and His earthly ministry what this looks like. And so this morning I want to put for you three titles that we find in the church in the old in the, in the new. Testament and we find in the church today and just ask us, what does the Bible say about these three titles in the church? And the first title you see there in your notes and maybe behind me on the screen is that of Christ. You see the title of Christ all throughout scripture. You're talking about Jesus Christ. And when we think about Christ and we think about in the, t- in the sense of here in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, we see that Christ is the head. If you would, pick your Bible up and look with me at chapter 16 and verse 18. And notice how notice how Matthew records the words of Jesus. The, the context is they're doing ministry. He looks at his disciples and says, who do the people say that I am? Peter comes back and he says, you are the Christ. He acknowledges in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus goes, blessed are you, Peter. And he goes on for a few more, few more words. And then he gets to verse 18 and he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Friends, brothers and sisters, when we think about the title of Christ, we recognize that Christ is the head. We recognize that this church belongs to Christ this church does not belong to me and this church does not belong to you this not, church does not belong to generations gone by this church does not belong to a certain group of people or a community this church belongs to Jesus Christ where do you get that from Spence because Jesus says this is my church. You will hear people will talk from time to time about, well, you know what, I'll hear preachers and they will say, well, my church and my people. And I cringe every time I hear that because and the reality is, and we'll see this in a few moments, you are not my church. You are Jesus Christ church. And when I hear other people come in and say, well, I will allow this in my church and this is permissible in my church and they have all this language like we have ownership or we have control, we need to be careful because this church, why we may be a part of it, why we may be involved with it and why we might have invested in it does not belong to us. This is Christ church. And not just that he is the head of it, and as I told you, remember, we're going to be going through a lot of scripture. So then turn right in your Bible, turn to your right to Matthew chapter 28. The Bible makes it very clear that when it comes to Christ, he is the head. He is in charge of the church. The question at the very onset is, who's in charge? Well, the Bible makes it very clear, who's in charge is Jesus Christ. Christ why because the church belongs to him but not just that but you go to Matthew chapter 28 and you look in verse 18 and even before you get to what is known as the great commission Jesus comes to them in verse 18 and he says and Jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me Amen. has been given has been given to the individual has been given to the congregation has been given to the greatest tither, has been given to the oldest member. No, all authority in heaven has been given to Christ because the church belongs to Christ and because Christ has authority over the church. And it is the idea that when we think about who is in charge of the church, we recognize that Christ is in charge of the church because Christ has authority over the church. Now that is huge. That is pivotal when we start to think about the future of the church and we start to think about the direction of the church and we start to think about the ministry of the church that we don't come together and start saying, well, I want this, you want that. Let's figure out how to work together. We come together and say, what does Jesus want us to do? Where does Christ want us to go? Because I am not in charge and you are not in charge. We are here under the authority of Jesus Christ. And not just that it belongs to Christ, not just that he has authority over the church. But if you go to Colossians chapter one, and some of you in this room have spent a lot of time in Colossians. You go to Colossians chapter one, we see another key insight when it comes to Christ being the head of the church. In fact, in Colossians chapter one in verse 18, it says, it says, Peter is, or I'm sorry, Paul is writing and he says in verse 18, talking about Christ. Let me back up to verse 15 for the sake of context. He says, he," and he's talking about Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the Church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What Paul is saying to the church there in Colossae is that in everything, Christ is first. In everything, Christ is where it begins, Christ is where it maintains, Christ is where it delves, Christ is the head of the body. He is the very beginning. In fact, He is the one. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about we are the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells about how the church will one day answer to Christ in the Bema seat language. It is 1 Thessalonians 4 where it tells us that Christ is coming back for the church. Revelation 20 where we are going to reign for a thousand years in the millennial reign with Christ. It is all centered, all coming from Jesus, which means that He is the head, He's in charge. He has authority. He has control. He is in charge of the church. Well, that would sound really great if Jesus Christ was here in physical form. It would sound so good if all of a sudden we could just say, well, you know what, we're going to have a song service, and then Jesus is going to come up and preach. But the reality is, is that the Bible tells us that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So now in a 21st century picture... Who is it? Who is it that leads? Who is it that serves? I think up until now we had quite a bit of uniformity in our opinions. But the Bible tells us that in the absence of Jesus Christ and in the continuation of the New Testament church, it's the pastor. Now, you may say, oh, so what he's saying is that he has all control, he has all authority. No, let me just tell you how I think about this. Eli is 14, our oldest is 14 right now. He's gotten to the point that we think that he is able to hold down the fort. So, mom and I can go have something to eat apart from five kids. So I will look at Eli and before we're getting ready to leave, I will look at Eli and I will say, all right, son, your mother and I, we're going to go get something to eat. You are responsible. You are in charge. I am leaving you here to manage the household. I am going to give you this responsibility for me to leave. Let me ask you a question. When I leave, does Eli have full authority? No. Whenever I leave, does Eli then have all the control over the house? No, whenever I leave, Eli is therefore tasked with being responsible to what I have entrusted to him. In other words, and I put this there in your note, the pastor, when you think about the title of pastor, I want you to think about this, the title of the steward. You see, nowhere in scripture do I see this idea where the pastor has authority, the pastor has control, the pastor is in charge of whatever he does. No, the pastor is a steward of what that, that which Christ has entrusted and left to him. So when I leave the house and Eli is there, Eli knows what does he need to do? He needs to do what daddy told him to. And in the absence of saying, well, daddy didn't say that, he goes, well, what has daddy said in the past that would inform me and help me understand what I'm supposed to do? And then if the case may be, he may say, well, daddy has taught me, daddy has has instilled in me wisdom and I am going to lean on what I have been taught to do, groomed to do, told to do, and that is how I'm going to act. But at the end of the day, when daddy comes home, Eli is going to answer to dad. And somewhere in the life of the church today, we've gotten this twisted. And you will have some churches that the pastor comes in and they think that they are God incarnate. And they will come in and say that I have authority. I have rule. This is my church. You are my people. We are going to do it my way. But that is a complete manipulation and twist of what scripture shows us. So where do we get this idea of pastor? Now, there's a lot of different words that you may see used for pastor. It may be bishop, it may be overseer, it may be elder, it might be pastor. And there's a lot of different Greek words, and some of them have different nuances. But overall, there is leadership that Christ gives to the church. Think about Ephesians chapter 4. Put this there in your notes. But Ephesians chapter four, he's talking about the unity of the body, the unity that is found in Christ Jesus. We have no unity in the church apart from Christ Jesus. We have unity in Christ, in our identity in Christ. And he says in chapter four and verse 11, he says, and he, he's talking about Jesus Christ. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? He gave leadership to the church. So leadership is a gift from God. But why did Jesus Christ give? leadership to the church. I'm so glad you asked. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until, until he says, so what G- Christ has done in his absence, he has given leadership to the church in the form of these different capacities so that the body can be equipped, the body can be equipped for building up the body, for the work of ministry until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And then he goes on and he talks about this idea of what happens when Jesus unifies people and that through the leadership that God and through Jesus Christ has ordained and we see over and over and over again, it is a gift from God. Those that exercise this gift faithfully understand that stewardship is responsibility. That stewardship is responsibility. Any pastor worth his salt understands that the calling of the pastor is not the calling of dictator. The calling of the pastor is not the calling of tyrant. The calling of the pastor is not the calling to get his way. The calling of the pastor is that of stewarding what has been entrusted to him. I think about Matthew chapter 25 and you have the parable of the talents. You remember that parable, Jesus telling a story about a master, him coming to his workers and he gives one five, he gives one two and he gives one, two, gives one of them one talent and then he goes away. And while he's away, the one that had five, the one that had two and the one that had one, they did different things with those talents. And yet when that master, Pastor came back. He was asking them. He required of them an account of what they did with what he had given them. And when it comes down to the end of the day, the pastors, the faithful pastors in the churches, understand that they have been given a responsibility to steward what Christ has entrusted to them. They are stewards. They are carrying out a responsibility. They are not in control. They are not despots. They are simply people trying to carry out and execute the responsibilities that Christ has given to them. So we look in scripture and we see see these titles. We see Christ as being the head. We see pastor as being the steward when we think about this idea. So how does this pastor then function? What what responsibilities does that person have? What authority does that person have? And we have all of these words that too many times we should ascribe to Christ. But we think that about the pastor. But when we come down to the end of the day, you find in 1 Peter 5 what I think may be the most comprehensive picture of the job description of a pastor. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter is writing to the fellow pastors there in modern-day Turkey. And he reminds them that the imagery that Christ gave them was that of a shepherd and sheep. And the same imagery then applies to not just Jacob, Harriet's son, but the imagery applies to this idea of a biblical picture. You see in that agrarian culture everybody would understand this concept everybody would understand this imagery everybody would understand this illustration now in the 21st century a lot of this is lost on us because very few of us woke this morning woke up this morning to the bleeding of sheep but all throughout scripture in Jesus's ministry, he continues to remind them that he is the great shepherd and he is the great shepherd over the sheep. And the picture there is that you have Christ as the chief shepherd and you have the believers in Jesus Christ as the sheep. But Peter comes in here in 1 Peter 5 and he says, men, I want you to understand you are not the chief shepherd and you are not the sheep. You are considered to be an under shepherd. You are considered to be a person that is there li- serving responsible. Responsible stewarding the flock of Jesus Christ. So he says in chapter 5 and verse 1 So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gay, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then he goes on and he talks about the reality and the relationship of the sheep to the under-shepherd as the, chief, as the sheep to the, 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 the shepherd, this pastor that, this pastor that is presented here in the text. There's all these things that when it all comes together and the, and the sheep are, are, are being sheep and the under-shepherd is being the under-shepherd and the chief shepherd is being the chief shepherd, the beauty that comes in the life of the church when there is clarity and understanding. On the, on the titles and the roles within the church. Years ago, years ago before he was disgraced publicly, Bill Cosby did a comedy special. And I remember because whenever I was my boys' age, he was on a cassette tape. And we wore this cassette tape out. And Billy, Bill Cosby was doing this stand-up routine. And he was talking about his life and his family. And there was a comedy routine where one of the stories that he told about was waking up early one morning. And his wife was going to stay in the bathroom. And his wife said, would you go down and feed the kids breakfast? So Bill Cosby thinks, absolutely, I'll go down and feed the kids breakfast. And so he troughs right down there. And he says, he's sitting there in the kitchen. And here comes his little girl. And his little girl comes up. And he says, what do you want for breakfast? And she said, I want breakfast chocolate cake. (laughs) And he turned around and he looked and over there on the cabinet there was a whatever you call it, a display case. And there was a chocolate cake inside there. And he looked at his daughter and he wants to make his daughter happy. And he's thinking, well, she wants cake. Well, how do I justify giving her cake? And so he started to think and he thought, well, you know what, what should you have for breakfast? You should have eggs and you should have uh, toast and you should have all these food groups for breakfast. Well, he starts to think about it and he realizes that in this chocolate cake has many of the same food groups. So he thinks, you know what, breakfast with chocolate cake is a good idea. So as only Bill Cosby can tell the story, he gives the daughter chocolate cake. And then no more after he gives the daughter chocolate cake and the other kids have the chocolate cake and they're singing the praises of the father. Here comes the mother. And she is not happy because Bill Cosby fed the chocolate cake to the children. And at the climax or the, the, the zenith of the comedy and the zenith of the laughing, Bill Cosby said, I gave them the cake because they asked for the cake. And you may say, well, what does that have to do with what we're talking about this morning? I wonder how many pastors are going to look to Jesus Christ one day and said, yeah, I know what you wanted me to do, but this is what they wanted to do. And I went with them instead of you. And how many people are served by a hireling more so than a shepherd? Peter writes to the church there in 1 Peter 5, and he says, this is the charge for the pastors. You're to shepherd the flock. You're to exercise oversight over the flock. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. And over again, and I wish I could turn more places you can look at First Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about similarities. You can go to Mark chapter three, he talks about calling the 12 disciples and, and those 12 disciples knowing what the responsibility that we're gonna to hold to. You go to Acts chapter 13, when they set aside Paul and they set aside Barnabas and they're gonna go out and it says, this is the responsibility, this is the stewardship that we have given you. And they send them out all throughout scripture. When you see God called men, they understand that they are not God. They are agents, they are stewards, they are working under the authority of Jesus Christ so when we think about pastors let us not think about pastors as being in charge or in control they are simply a stewards to that which God has entrusted to them so we think about Christ we think about the pastor and then let's spend a moment on the church how does the bible picture the church I want you to see with me this morning that the Bible pictures the church as being disciple makers. As being disciple makers. Turn back to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, I read to you in your hearing just a few moments ago in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Jesus comes and says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, in the preceding verses, it says up there in verse 16, now when the 11 disciples had gathered, there's a little bit of uh, discussion when it comes to the commentary. Exactly who was there? Was it just the 11 disciples? Matthew talks about the 11 disciples being there. But then when you get over to Acts chapter one, some people may think that there are more people that are gathered besides just the 11. Either way, Jesus is leaving his final instructions to the church. And when he looks at the church, what does he tell them to do? He says in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then he tells them, and if you look at the structure, the word order, the grammatic breakdown of this in the original text, that is the primary mission. And then following that is how do you do it? So you go make disciples, how? By baptizing them, by bringing them into repentance, by bringing them into an understanding of who Jesus Christ is, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You teach them. You teach them what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus looks at that church. He looks at those apostles that he is leaving to then continue the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's looking at these individuals, these believers, and he says, this is what I want you to do. You're going to go make disciples. Acts chapter one, parallel passage, similar in language, same scene written from a different perspective. Jesus says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then he tells them what they're gonna do when they get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, or you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth. He tells them that when my spirit gets a hold of you and you realize what you were saved for and what you were called to, you are saved and called to make disciples. We have been, as you see there in your notes, we have been commissioned by Christ. We have been commissioned by Christ to go and make disciples. Now, we may vary in this room about the best best methodology to do it. We may differ in this room on exactly how that looks in one season or another season. We might differ in this room on how it looks like in one geographical area versus another geographical area. But brothers and sisters, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you know that you're saved here this morning, you have one chief job as a believer in Jesus Christ— that is to make disciples. Not to play little Jesus and run the show. Not to go around to control or manipulate or try to pull the strings. We have one job, and that is to make disciples. I wonder. Years before he went woke, David Platt was a, he doesn't even know my name, but he has been a mentor of mine from a distance for years. And I remember David Platt talking about going to Southeast Asia and was going to a seminary graduation. And he was supposed to speak this seminary graduation. I remember him telling the story about when he went down there, one of the requirements to graduate from seminary is that you had to have led a certain number of people to the Lord and those people that you led to the Lord have also been required to have led a certain number of people to the Lord because their idea was is that if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing in a step of obedience to Christ, then what right do you have to graduate with the titles and with the name of this seminary on you? What would it be like if we said you can't vote on matters of the church until you've led one person to the Lord in the last six months? What would it be like if we say that, you know what? In order to have spiritual input in the life of this church, you need to be spiritually living out the obedience that God has called the church to live. The metrics, the standards, the measurements... As so many churches use today, are unbiblical. In church, when we think about how the Bible describes the church, specifically in the book of Acts, we see a people gathered together, commissioned by Christ. to more places. 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about these people commissioned by Christ. But then the Bible also talks about what this picture looks like. And he talks about them as being a part of the body of Christ. And more so than that, he talks about what it looks like when you have individual believers living, serving, following as a healthy part of the body. And if you get to Hebrews, or sorry, not Hebrews, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about how this body then works together. Verse 14, he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would be the, bo- where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. You notice he doesn't talk about anybody being the head. He talks not talk about anybody being the neck. He doesn't talk about anybody being the brains. In fact, the language that he uses there is foot, hand, eye, ear, and nose. He's talking about individuals that God crafts together that every person has a role. If you are here this morning and you are a saved follower of Jesus Christ, you have a part to play in the body. You have a part to play in the body of believers. We need you here at this church. We need you in ministry. We need you to be healthy. We need you to be serving. We need you to be devoted to Jesus Christ. We need you to have the kind of spirit that puts God first, meaning you spend time with the Lord, means you spend time with God's people and you follow him chiefly. We need you here. But not every single one of us is here to be the same piece. And where the church gets off the rails is when we have multiple people wanting to be the same part. Not being content with the part that God has called them to. Showing up saying, I want to be that part. Or elevating one part over the other. Do you not realize that we are all here under the authority of one Savior? Jesus Christ. So he says... You're commissioned by Christ. You're healthy parts of the body. And then this last one, this last one, and I'll be done. Acts chapter four. When he talks about the church, and he talks about the church being disciple makers. He talks about Christ being the head. He talks about the pastor being the steward of the church. He talks about the church being disciple makers. But then one last aspect that I want us to see together there in Acts chapter four is that the church is united by mission. We're united by mission. I want you to see this with me. I I, I just... I've read this I've prayed this I've cried about this I've seen this this I've seen it this last week Acts chapter 4 the context is that Peter and John, they are arrested because they were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and they get taken in front of the religious leaders and the religious leader says, you better stop what you're doing. And they look at the religious leaders back up in verse 19 and they say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so they release Peter and John because they're like, I don't know what to do with them. They won't, they won't shut their mouths and we, can't, we don't feel like we have anything to charge them for. What are we gonna do with them? They said, let them go. And they come back. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, you would think that all of those early believers would gather together and say, well, we better lay low for a little while. We better be quiet for a little while. We better just hit pause. We better just chill out for a minute. We better quit making such a stink. Verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined, to take place. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They didn't ask for a reprieve from the persecution. They didn't ask for less obstacles. They didn't ask to be taken out of the scenario. They didn't ask to be relieved of the problems that they were facing. They didn't ask to be healed from the ailments that they were struggling with. They didn't ask for less, uh, less opposition from the world. They didn't ask to be taken out of the world. They said, give us boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. When the world was battering against their doors, when Satan was trying to divide their spirit, when all the excuses that you would ask for to quit, to be quiet, to go away, was there. They didn't pray. They didn't pray for ease or comfort or peace. They prayed for boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus. Church, there's a lot of things that we can get together to do and there's some things that we need to get together and do. But none of the things that we can do when it comes to business meeting, when it comes to committee meetings, when it comes to meetings and meetings and meetings, when it comes to all the things, when it comes to the structure or when it comes to the uh, governance of the church, none of that should trump our boldness to tell people about Jesus. None of that should trump our desire and our responsibility, our commissioning by God to go and tell people about Jesus. And yet it is possible, yet it is possible. And it might even be plausible that we can have very sweet intention, very well-intentioned saints in the kingdom of God that become distracted and become fixated on the things that the devil puts in front of us to distract us and lure us away. And we forget there are lost people outside this church. that we don't know if they've heard the name of Jesus yet or not. And right here in the New Testament, they're not praying for more people, more buildings, more money, more decisions. They're praying for boldness so they can go out and do what Christ had commissioned them to do. They're praying Give us the boldness to go out and proclaim the name of Jesus. The rest of that stuff will work itself out. I assure you that each and every single one of you in this room, if next week you bring back one person, we're gonna have questions that we gotta answer. We're gonna need definitely a different air conditioning system. We're gonna probably need some more chairs. What are we going to do about this class, Spence? What are we going to do about this space, Spence? What are we going to do about this direction, Spence? What are we going to do about this opportunity, Spence? And I understand that those are all good and those are all right, and we need to address them. But brothers and sisters, it's not a matter of me deciding. It's a matter of saying, Christ, what do you want us to do? And looking at Scripture and saying, this is what Scripture says, and I think this is how we should apply Scripture. Let's go. Let's go. But we get caught up. We get caught up looking in different directions. My time has gone. Let me give you three questions. Three questions from the text this morning. First question that I ask you is, who are we going to follow? Who are we going to follow? Are we going to follow man and this world and their ideals? or Are we going to follow the Bible and the spirit of God? What are we going to do? Are we going to seek to be a biblical church above all else or will we be satisfied with being a content church? Maintaining the status quo, not rocking the boat. What kind of church are we going to be for this next generation to follow? What kind of church are we going to be Are we going to be a lazy church? Are we going to be an apathetic church? Are we going to be a church that prioritizes the lost over prioritizing our preferences? Are we going to be a church that says, I'm willing to do it if the Bible tells me to do it? Are we going to be a church that is led by Christ, cared for by the leadership from Christ, a church that says we are disciple makers and people will see that in us? What kind of church are we going to be? Several years ago, in the midst of a transition, this church was going through these very same questions. You may not have been here during that time of transition. But during this time of transition, when they were looking for the next pastor for this church. They were asking questions similar to this. And they came up with an answer back then. This morning... Brandon's going to come, and he's going to remind us as a church what this church thought just three years ago and the heart of the church then. You bow your heads with me. The question for you this morning, is that your heart? Is that your spirit? Do we as a church desire to be that kind of church? Do you as a believer desire to be biblical? and desire to be faithful? And as we come back this evening, I would ask that as we return, that we return with a heart Turn with a heart that desires Christ above ourselves. And we just sit and we say, God, make us bold for this community.